You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. Hey, it's Tom Van Derk. Today I'm flying solo. I'm flying literally. I'm in Taipei uh, in, in a trip between SoCal and Singapore. I visited 20 amazing personalized learning schools uh, this week in Southern California, and I, I want to talk about personalized learning today. We are going to uh, we're going to cover five attributes of personalized learning, and then talk about five ways teachers can support personalized learning, ten ways administrators can uh, build systems for personalized learning, and then we'll finish with a couple thoughts on architecture and environments. So let's dive in and talk about the five attributes of personalized learning. What is it? A, a simple definition of personalized learning is what whatever's best for the learner at the time. That stands in contrast to institution-based learning, which is what's most convenient or expeditious for a cohort given a particular budget and given a set of state policies. But we're talking about what's best for kids here. Uh, personalized learning weighs learner interest uh, learner progressions, that's what's best to learn in a, in a sequence, in a particular discipline or skill sequence, and an opportunity. For example, is it a full moon or a high tide? Is there a, a service need? Is there a civic event or a business trip? In other words, personalized learning is a balance of what the learner wants to learn, what the learner should learn, and what the learner could learn. So all of those are important and contextual and in the moment. And it means that personalized learning can be self-directed, but it really helps to have a great teacher, a great advocate, a great coach. Number two, personalized learning requires extended challenges. If you value critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, character, including agency and persistence, you just can't get there with a series of worksheets. Learners need big integrated projects, some individual, some team, many of them community connected, often ending in a public product, and oftentimes with voice and choice in terms of the topic and what that product looks like. Number three, personalized learning requires individualized skill building. That means identifying and addressing uh, skill gaps with targeted instruction. That can happen with teachers and also with adaptive tools. Um, both of those are really important to help every student fully participate in high quality project-based learning. So skill building can happen before a project. You, you can identify a possible need that a group of kids will have to fully participate for a project that's coming up next week. You can do real-time remediation during a project that would be providing a writing coach or some problem-solving real-time. And you can do it after uh, a project is done when you've identified a need. Number four, personalized learning happens anywhere, anytime. That means it can happen at school, after school, during the summer. As our friends at LRNG have been attempting to do, we have to unlock rich, out-of-school learning experiences for all students. And we have to get better at capturing and signaling uh, the new capabilities that they develop to other stakeholders so learners can progress on a demonstrated mastery. That's one of the reasons that competency policy is so important because it can help unlock opportunity. And finally, number five, social and emotional learning. 
self and social awareness, the ability to navigate complex relationships are, those are all developed in trust-based communities. Uh, today I was at Thrive Public Schools in San Diego and they start and end the, every day in community. At Thrive, um, founder Nicole Assisi wants to make sure that every kid is, is greeted every day, that they're known, seen, and valued, that every kid has a voice. So when you do these five things, learners build a sense of agency, a sense of identity as a learner. They begin to own their own learning and there's lifelong dividends for that kind of agency. Next, let's take a look at five things that teachers can do to support personalized learning. Number one, as Todd Rose would say, teachers can recognize and celebrate the jagged profile of every learner. Every student's different. They learn differently. They learn at different rates and, and in different ways, and it's time to embrace those differences. Number two, help every learner build a, a plan. Yesterday, I was in Cajon Valley uh, School District, east of San Diego, a great K-8 district where they help every student build a plan based on their unique strengths, interests, and values. They explore those through 54 world of work engagements between uh, K-8. to Number three, teachers can plan extended challenges. As I said before, project-based learning uh, is a really important part of personalized learning. We use projects to boost engagement, application, integration, critical thinking, um, and, and, and we can do that with uh, periodic community-connected challenges. Uh, check out hqpbl.org for more on, on high-quality project-based learning. You don't have to do this by yourself. Do it with a partner, do it with a grade-level team, or, uh, or encourage the whole school to make it a, a week-long endeavor. Teachers use uh, smart tools to personalize learning. You don't have to grade every paper by yourself. You can use automated writing feedback systems. You can use adaptive math systems. Uh, you can use competency systems to help learners manage their own progress. And finally, uh, teachers collaborate. Personalized learning is a team sport. It's difficult, it's complicated. I know that tools aren't really good enough to support uh, personalized learning yet, so it takes real hard work and teamwork. Next, let's take a look at 10 ways that administrators can help. First, they can build a collaborative vision for personalized learning. Uh, every great system head or network leader that I've seen has, uh, really has a a powerful and personal way to describe personalized learning. I think of uh, Pat DeClotz in, in Kettle Moraine. Uh, I think of, of Randy Ziegenfuss in, in Salisbury uh, near Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, leaders that have a real uh, a persistent and personal way of describing what great learning looks like. Second, uh, great leaders have a community conversation about what graduates should know and be able to do. They build a, a graduate profile, a summary of what the, what the community really wants. And a great community conversation is gonna lead to a broad profile, one that not only values basic skills, but also uh, success skills, collaboration, creativity, uh, that sense of agency and initiative. 
Number three, they, they build a framework and, and help teachers and schools grow into that framework. Uh, District 51 in Colorado is a great example of that. Albemarle, Virginia, uh, Salisbury, Pennsylvania, and uh, Cahoon Valley, where I was yesterday, are all great examples of a comprehensive framework where they encourage schools to grow into that framework. Next, great leaders build a fast lane and a slow lane. Teachers and schools need personalized and competency-based learning, too. This is a great lesson from Pat the Klotz in Kettle Moraine. Recognizing that not all her schools were ready to move at the same rate, Pat created four micro schools a few years ago that allowed teachers and students and parents that were ready to move ahead with personalized learning to do it. And it really painted a picture of what great learning looks like and it, it helped move the whole system. Number five, uh, identify and support teacher leaders. You really can't impose a personalized learning agenda on a system anymore. You really have to identify teachers that are already doing a great job of it, learn from them, solicit their leadership, provide incentives and new roles for them to contribute. One way for them to contribute, number six, is using uh, micro pilots and micro schools. Uh, you don't have to plan for two years for a, a, a new personalized learning school. You can try something after school today. Try, try it at Saturday school uh, and then try it in summer school. And if that works, try it in a, a school within a school academy with two teachers and 40 students in the, uh, maybe after uh, the break. Uh, if that works, try a couple more micro schools. Uh, so start small, iterate, and let things grow at their, at their own rate. Number seven, be opportunistic. Uh, look for uh, opportunities wherever they present themselves. Maybe it's a, a, a new school. Maybe it's a curriculum adoption, a budget change, a, a policy change. Look for ways to work from the edges in wherever you get opportunity. Number eight, develop personalized learning infrastructure. Adopt a, a learning platform that everybody can use and share resources. Make sure that you have a, a grade book that really reflects your, your learning priorities, that you're capturing uh, what matters most to you and your system. Number nine, work from those edges in and work in phases. Don't try to do this all at once. Uh, you may want to work from middle grades up and down, or you may want to roll things up from elementary to high school. You may want to start thematically with, with technology and then move into personalized and project-based learning. But work in phases over a, a couple years. Um, don't try to do everything at once. And then finally, number 10, put the vision on a timeline. Equity requires that you can't be haphazard about this, that you, you really do have to make sure that every learner has access to personalized learning. So you do need a plan with a timeline that makes sure every student uh, has opportunities to learn. Let me close with a few thoughts about space and architecture. I saw some really amazing buildings this week. I was at High Tech High in San Diego a few days ago and reminded when I showed up there in 1999 and 
Larry Rosenstock showed me this gutted out warehouse and he explained to me that height and light and exposed structure uh, were important elements of architecture and that he wanted every high-tech high school uh, to, to have those to the extent possible, to bring exterior light in, to have high ceilings, uh, to see exposed structures, to try to create spaces that were inspiring and inviting. Number two, exhibitions of student art. High Tech High is really the best art school in the world. And they're particularly good at making their spaces welcoming and real celebrations of student learning contributions. Uh, I saw the same at many different schools this week. I was at the Da Vinci schools that partner with the school district in El Segundo. Beautiful new building, lots of examples of student work uh, in, in all of those spaces. Number three is um, multi-age spaces, big common spaces. Uh, a great example of this that we saw a couple months ago is in Albemarle County, Virginia. That's Charlottesville, where they're renovating elementary schools with big multi-age spaces, sort of the equivalent of six classrooms together, but in spaces that are uh, have different ceiling heights and different floor heights and common spaces in the middle so that you're together, but you can uh, have a, a breakout room that groups can meet and have uh, quiet spaces to learn. But it makes it very easy uh, to do performance grouping where kids can move back and forth between different groups that are interest-based or level-based. I saw a, a bit of that in uh, Lindsay, California, a great competency-based district where Knocking down some walls made it possible uh, for students to move easily between classrooms. I saw this in El Paso where there are 10 uh, new tech schools, uh, team taught project based schools where big integrated blocks are facilitated by big open spaces. Uh, I saw it today at Thrive Public Schools where all the classrooms were connected with, with barn doors and uh, breakout rooms that made it really easy uh, to go from big groups to small groups. Number four is new seating configurations. One thing I'm seeing a lot of this year are combinations of seating, um, high top, low top, hard uh, seat, soft seat, uh, you know, bean bags and couches and just the opportunity for kids to make choices about when and where they sit, lots of the rocking stools. Uh, it's just, it's great to see lots of variety in seating um, popping up, making it possible for students to work individually in small groups and, and then uh, in large groups. Finally, a reminder that uh, we have to think about how our systems work, how kids get, uh, kids and families get access to personalize learning. That means we have to be intentional about where programs are located, the kind of transportation policy is how kids get to them, how students enroll in those, uh, in those programs. Let's add technology to that list. Uh, it was great to see um, in Santa Ana, California this week, 
a one-to-one district that allows students to take devices home and where uh, they beam their Wi-Fi out into the community to extend access where students have access to, to take home Wi-Fi, where they have uh, community partners that extend discounted Wi-Fi, where there's community hotspots. So being intentional about real community access to broadband uh, is also another key to personalized learning. So there you have it, uh, a, a brief look at personalized learning, five important aspects, five strategies for teachers, 10 ways administrators can help. Uh, I, I'd love to hear from you uh, on what you think we missed in, in terms of personalized learning. Uh, if you have a great story, a great example of personalized learning, let us know. Let us know what you think about this episode. Rate and review the podcast, send thoughts on the show and suggestions for others to editor at gettingsmart.com. And uh, I'm on my way to Singapore. So stay tuned for a great report from our friends at the Singapore American School. This is Tom signing off.